Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Keeper Mark, and with me tonight are Keeper Bob. <laughs> and Keeper Jen. Good evening. Tonight, we examine the puzzle of the Carnelian Cube by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt. Bob, do you want to give us a synopsis? The Carnelian Cube of the title is a small red dreamstone confiscated by archaeologist Arthur Cleveland Finch from Tiradat Araminian, one of the workers on the dig that he is supervising in Cappadocia. It bears an inscription in Etruscan that appears to identify its original possessor as Apollonius of Tyana, a wandering aesthetic philosopher wonder worker who lived from 15 to 100 AD. Supposedly, the stone allows the bearer to attain the world of his dreams. Arthur Finch is a man who thinks he knows what he wants until he has it. Once he has it, the task becomes how to get rid of it again and again. It had its moments. It has moments. But basically, it's like three and a half interwoven stories, and there are so many characters to try to keep on track of, and without making a list, you're like, wait, what? Who? which one was that now? It never circles back to what is a promising beginning either, where the hints of this philosopher poet who gave Tiradat the stone that they're going to go investigate. There's Owens, this character who's part of the story, but there's no follow through on any of that sort of beginning. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't really, doesn't really have a complete feel to it. Well, it's like there's what I found to be two main recurring archetypes. You have the holder of the cube, who in some cases isn't shown until like the last scene, and this love interest, but only in the dreams. There's not a love interest in the beginning, the intro to it, before he other finds than, the stone. Other, other than yet again, another spurned sort of spousal relationship, similar to Maker of the Universes, where he's always nice. sort of, you know, leaving that present life for his dream worlds. And, and all of his dream worlds are overreactions. Yes. <laughs> yes, that that's a really good way to put it. I pulled down my DMG to look because there's that section on the supposed magical properties of gemstones. And in the DMG, Carnelian is protection from evil. So I'm like, well, that's not it. And I started <laughs> thinking about it. I'm like, oh. This is a master class in how to handle someone casting wish. <laughs> I wish this. Okay, here it is. All of it. Wow. 110%. 
That's a good point. It is one of those things that he's obviously drawing some inspiration from this author's work. This is a novel that's specifically named in Appendix N, so it doesn't have Mm -hmm. that direct feel like a lot of the other works that we've studied, though. And this wasn't really a well-received book. (laughs) I I mean, the New York Times called it heavy-handed and said, as for the humor, the less said, the better. Fantasy Review called it scattershot and pointless. And Amazing Stories said it was not quite up to the standards of the author's best work, but nevertheless diverting and at times a racy tale. The best reviews (laughs) are rave reviews. Nobody liked this thing. Um, Except Gary. Well, maybe there (laughs) there you go. Am I the only one who had this feeling of like dread or apprehension as you're reading it? I mean, to me, it felt like I was reading Sign of the Labors again. You had some interesting ideas on the caste system and the class and everything. But outside of a couple little tidbits, well, like, if you go through, there's three dream sequences, right? We're not giving away too much in saying that. No. Hmm. The the, the book's 40 (laughs) years old. Fine. There were distinct themes running through each dream. Like in the first one, Finch was repeatedly called irrational. Don't be irrational. In the second one, oh, aren't you original? Oh, he's got a true scientific mind. He's original. And that was just pounded over and over again. Then you get to number three. It's like that whiplash of history just kind of recoiling. The true scientific mind was a downfall. He was too humanitarian. And in that world, they had the science of astrology, which dictated everything. And yeah. I think one of the issues that I had throughout the book was the tonal understanding of whether this was supposed to be a parody, whether it was supposed to be making light of the pseudosciences or the real sciences of Hans Gunther, you know, the German race yeah. pope, you know, or, or was it really trying to be more of an illusion and historical richness and, and and really being straightforward about it, which it just never clarified itself. It just yeah, turned out to be very off-putting for me. It's really hard to tell if the whole thing isn't just meant as a farce. Because there are, it, does, it doesn't it doesn't come across like that though it's it's not they're exaggerated stereotypes at least yeah, in the second and third one there's there's certainly some exaggerations but that's because every world is exaggerated because of the way he is he's essentially wishing you know I want I want to be in a in a world where where things are are, are more serious and rigid well now they're completely rigid well crap okay well I want to be an individual okay everybody's an individual there's your originality yep I just want to go back to reconstructing history okay well let's reconstruct history let's let's brainwash people and that's the world where they're making up words and <sighs> seriously <laughs> <laughs> that last one was a little tough to read. Did anybody else get the feeling when you got to the end of the book, in in your mind's ear, did you hear, and Dr. Sam Beckett never returned home? <laughs> this was the end of Quantum Leap for me. I mean, this was just, oh my God, no, no. It's sort of like a pseudo, I mean, it's a very familiar tale to, you know, viewers of the Twilight Zone. These sort of come up oh, yeah. says that that happen, but- the joke just went on too far, you know, for each of these mm-hmm. dreams. They became boring rather than interesting in many right. cases. And, and it was a simple premise that 
it was really more deserved a short story format than a 200 page novel. Even if he had just went through the first one and finally through whatever series of events reacquires the cube, goes into dream two and scene, cut, you're done. (laughs) That would be a really good episode of The Twilight Zone. Obviously, the ending left it open for a sequel that they never made, probably because it was not well received to begin with. Yeah. But the Carnelian Cube itself, I thought was interesting, because it kind of reminded me of like an H.P. Lovecraft Dreamlands version of a monkey's paw. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's got a lot. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. Call of Cthulhu more than D&D the whole time I was reading this. And it is one of those things that it, there's just, it's got some intriguing, insightful things at parts. But for me, it fell flat. And it fell flat probably during that first dream about halfway through when it's how long do I have to put up with this dialect? <laughs> that just try use goys, yeah. And that other primary character just read like Barney Fife to me <laughs> with the dialect that was written in. Well, gee, Ange, I think we need to set up this orgy. Wait, hang on, what just happened? <laughs> they really liked using the word orgy to mean mm-hmm. a meeting of people. Well, no, I think it was more than just a meeting of people. Uh, based on the descriptions, they just didn't go into depth. They couldn't go that racy in 1948. They they had to hint at it a little bit more. So they had to use the word like a dozen times just to pound it into people's brains. Well, because normally it's chanted over and over. So mm-hmm. I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Nice. I, um. And and the backward naming convention was kind of interesting. Like mm-hmm. he became Finch Arthur Poet, and okay, that you know that's kind of a linguistics thing along the archaeology and anthropological means. Okay, I can follow this and. I found myself wanting more of the details of the world because the story was kind of lacking. Yeah, I, I, I really wanted to care about this character and feel something. And the intro was so brief. The story that's told, it's just not that interesting from, you know, it's all from his perspective. You know, he's obviously like a hero figure in this story, but also a maligned hero figure in many ways because he's sort of I guess his subconscious is is reflecting some of the doubts that he has about his own abilities or his middle-agedness and things like that. He's and, certainly imperfect. But he, he's not a really compelling character in the beginning of the story either. He's just very abrupt with his workers. He's he's just mm-hmm. he's not somebody that I really felt invested in and to reside in his mind for so long. And then to come at the And I couldn't tell if the author was really trying to make us feel like he deserved our sympathy or if it was really he deserved our pity, right? Because he keeps going, I'll get it right this time. I'll get it right this time. And it is sort of this tragic figure at the end that's ending up with uh, this unresolved, will he make it out, will he not? It didn't really matter let's, Let's talk about the unsung heroes of this story then. The proctors in the first world, because they were the best part. <laughs> so you've been, uh, yeah. been accused of advertising. Are you going to resist? Uh, <laughs> I now love we that, understand yeah. you don't have enough experience, so you should swing on me to show that you are resisting arrest and angry. <laughs> to, to prove, yeah, they to, were to awesome. prove that, that it was, was that was probably <laughs> the best running gag through any portion of the book was the proctors. Yeah. Okay. Why, why didn't you tell him you was going into politics so he could give you a cushy sell? <laughs> no, you mean the politicians get cream of the crop here too, huh? 
figures. <laughs> you got to admit the aptitude test. That was some the riff funny on stuff. St. Ives I enjoyed. And come on, it ends with a game of pickup sticks. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I played this. I was like six. I've played this before. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but uh, just overall. Yeah. Overall, there are some interesting themes. Like any change that you make is bound to hurt somebody. And you can hardly get out of this except into a better and more perfect world, which is why he Thanks. keeps trying. Yeah, and yet he just keeps moving sideways to other crappy worlds instead. Well, yeah, who was it that told him in the beginning that you think it's perfect until it's not? And Okay, so things are weird, maybe not imperfect, but, oh, oh, this is bad. Oh, I'm being arrested again. Okay, should I resist this time? <laughs> That's like the only actual D&D connection I could find was a throwaway line, and it didn't even tie to something that Gary had written. There was a, I forget the title of it offhand, it was an adventure from Dragon Magazine that I ran for my players where you go to a wizard's island, and oh, yeah. as you're kind of bebopping around through all these weird portals, you come to a tower, at the top of the tower there's a griffin's nest, in the griffin's nest there's emeralds, and this book talks about the folklore that griffins put emeralds in their nests to keep away snakes. It's just this throwaway line. I was like, aha! No. <laughs> Nothing to do with anything Gary did. So, uh, no. I just can't see why this is specific. I can understand that. I mean, I thought maybe something really cool was going to happen in one of the scenes towards the end where in one of those reenactments, somebody is actually killed and the body is actually killed. And this dude goes over and starts tacking little tiny nails into the blood pattern because he's nailing down the ghost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that Holy was, crap, was a nice that's scene, yeah. creepy. To be yeah. fair, that wasn't the first person to be killed in the reenactment. It was just the first corpse he had seen. The, the guy that he said, impale him. They impaled him. They just didn't. <laughs> yeah, it was You just don't screen. realize it till later. Yeah. And you don't know if that creepy guy was there nailing down the blood there either. Well, that was for if you murder someone. If you murder someone, you nail down the blood. He had killed the king, so he was nailing uh, down the blood of the king. Yeah, there are there little nuggets like that that were sort of scattered through the book that you could take and use. Obviously, Sparta Camp and I don't know if it's Fletcher Pratt that did a lot of this, like sort of like the historical uh, allusions that they're they're trying to sprinkle in and, and showcase some of their literary depth, you know, in, in a way. But I mean, there's a, there's a lot of that, you know, it, well, obviously, Finch also just talks in the strangest way in terms of like, he's always referencing classics. And, you know, everything is is sort of like a wit play, you know, with him, or, or he's at least making himself that way in the dream world. He always had to be right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also just, it, it was a little showy, you know, from the authors mm -hmm. themselves that that could be why it was poorly received and heavy handed. <laughs> This was not a well-reviewed book, and it still isn't, uh, yeah. <laughs> as we can agree. <laughs> Although I will say it's a really good method if you want to enhance to, say, your players just how weird a place is. Start making up words. I don't know if you comprehendify what I'm trying to say. Well, but you can't yeah. get in the vernacular. I don't know if you comprehendify what I'm trying to tell you, because, you know, it's like uh, you being arrested for advertising. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that was, I, I was pointing to the third scene where there weren't any really weird accents I, I just want to portrayed. point out, and this I think says a lot about the Carnelian Cube as a book. If you look for signed editions by any appendix and author, they're not all amazingly through the roof expensive, but none of them are just throwaway cheap. But a Sprague de Comp signed first printing paperback of this book is $18. Hmm. Hmm. I think that says really as much as our review could. (laughs) Because his other signed works worth much more. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, my advice to anybody who's reading Appendix N is this this obviously, you know, is worth the read through if you're really devoted to being a completist on that list. But if you're just looking for what inspires the best in terms of gaming, this one can be skipped. Well, at least it certainly didn't hit any of us with any major inspirations. Right, right. But we'll get to that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. There were plenty of things that, you know, we could either borrow from it to create something inspirational or, as we do later, reskin. But, man, you got to do it with a little bit of tact. Don't do it using the same vernacular as appears in this book, please. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will not make you any friends. Well, with that, do you want to move on to things that we could stat out of this? Oh, God, please. Because there's Bob? No- <laughs> <laughs> really, I don't think there's that many things we could stat. I mean, obviously. But, you know, cube, there's one. Definitely the cube. <laughs> I think that could be a really neat magic item, especially the way that, you know, he'd go to sleep with it and he'd appear in the, in the next dream world and someone he would meet would have the cube, but he didn't wake up with it. The differing schools of astrology could certainly spawn differing spells, and that might be kind of fun. Apollonius of Tyana as a patron, perhaps with wish or like dream wish or a variant of. And be as open as you wanted to about what that character is, because it's never discussed in the book. So. Well, he, <laughs> Apollonius of Tyana was actually a historical figure. He really did live from 50 right, to 100. Right. But unless you're going to go recreate the history, you don't really know how things played out. <laughs> well, and the histories on him were written about 100 years after he was dead. So eh. I liked the uh, sentient alcoholic hallucinations. And in a Lankmar game, after a night of carousing, I would love to add that to my carousing table. Just one person sees this thing. <laughs> oh, It's like really chatty and constantly annoying him and distracting him and with him and just won't shut up. But nobody oh. else can see it. Or maybe one other person not in the party can. Yeah. Because I I really liked that little touch when there's the guy drinking scotch at the bar and he looks over and he's staring at the hallucination as he goes for another drink. Mm Mm-hmm. I also thought in the third world when they did the spirit manifestations with ectoplasm forming and and creating their bodies, and that's very turn-of-the-century spiritualism movement stuff. Or mm-hmm. I guess turn of the last century. God, I'm old. <laughs> but something like that would be really neat to use for the Shutter Mountains. Because it just, it would have kind of that feel. People sitting around the table, table tapping, and having a, mm-hmm. a seance, and then the ectoplasm flowing out of the medium's mouth and forming something. Those were the things that really leapt out at me. Well, don't forget that you always need to carry around a pair of pants for your spirits when they manifest, though. <laughs> yeah, because, well, yeah, because your know, ectoplasm doesn't make pants. <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. That must be what Amazing <laughs> Stories was talking about, and sometimes racy. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
that and orgy, orgy, orgy. So you had what? Gawanagis, the Native American, and then Roddy and Squilch were the other two phantasms. Squilch was awesome! <laughs> Squilch was this purple octopus or something. Yeah, or blue, sorry. I found it really interesting throughout each of those scenes, there was always some sort of overpowering scent, whether it was like the residual gunfire or yeah. the woman's perfume. Or Roddy. <laughs> yeah, or Roddy. <laughs> that, that was unfortunate. So I don't know if it would be something to stat so much as something to keep in mind. When you're running, don't forget the smells. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw it back to David Beatty with his rotting meat, but, you know, contain these overpowering scents. Don't leave them out and, you know, permeating <laughs> the table. <laughs> you want your players uh, to come back. It, right. <sighs> I really like the idea of putting together a ritual, if not a spell, based around the nailing down of the blood to prevent the ghost from coming up after him. Yeah. And in that same sequence, you had the types of people that were getting resequenced and brainwashed and whatnot, but they never explain what the types mean. Like, one was B-CQ31. And, man, there are so many tables you could put together for something like that yeah that's almost like a like a either a purple planet or an mcc type thing that you could you know also leverage where it has that sort of pseudo-scientific future feel to it yeah mentioning the nailing that again is something else that would go really well with the folk magic for shutter mountains mm -hmm. oh yeah that's that's true it would go well with folk magic i think it could be really interesting for one of the locations in the Temple District in Lankmar. One of the cults has a belief that you must do that whenever you see someone who has been killed. I also really like the idea of the gang wars for the book publishers. <laughs> <laughs> that could be so much fun. That could be a, a fun sort of lighthearted Lankmar, where the gangs are replaced by Ankh Morpork type yeah. setting. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Okay, that I want. <laughs> really, all of the background characters were far more interesting than the characters in the foreground. <laughs> they were. They were. It's now that we're now that we're getting into it. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Mark? Oh, now I, I can't get out of my mind. Like the first zine that I want to see published for Lankmar is the uh, <laughs> is is the literary gang uh, gangs of Lankmar. That's uh, oh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, don't you cross the librarians of Liber or we'll mess you up. Uh, uh, Here, let's see. Let us insert some prose that has never yet been written, but we're going to claim it's historic. <laughs> uh, I thought you could take some inspiration from the Assyrian pantheon or the Assyrian history that was part of the Dream 3. Um, you know, he mentions Nurgle, who's that Mesopotamian god of death, war, and destruction. You know, in the end, when he's trying to claim one last favor before his death. So I, I, I think the Assyrian aspects were, were sort of one of those things that it'd be kind of fun to either directly inspire or reskin some of the gods in the Pantheon and use those in a DCC game. Get another oh, yeah. sort of ancient people's beliefs that you could you know, have a flavor for your game. Um, talking about 
you know, the hallucinations and seeing them in a table in Lankmar. I love that idea. I think the other thing you want to add to that is uh, somebody who can suddenly understand people's thoughts after drinking a few sodas or drinks. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. That he, he becomes a, a bit of an ESPer after uh, after he drinks a few sodas. <laughs> I thought that was a very funny background character. You know, I like the, the ideas of mediums, you know, a little bit more noir sort of shady, you know, shady feel yeah. to it that you know, what the mediums are doing are really just getting in touch with the criminal classes, you know, and they're, they're really, they're there. That'd be kind of fun for a setting like, you know, Langmar or DCC where you go to the spiritualist because you need a job done. And yeah, you find the ghost who's the ex-thief, you, you know, you do something like that. That's kind of a clever utilization of that as a atypical, you know, way of introducing spiritualism. I think I like that a lot. I love that the alcoholic hallucinations that he saw also changed colors, you know, that yeah. I think Roddy turned from like polka dot to chocolate. And this this just sort of like the delirium tremens, you know, that it's infectious, even though he's taking this drug called a lunaria. That is this one that it doesn't get him drunk, but it enables him to see the phantoms. And it'll wear out after, what, like six months or something like that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, like, I think it was 30 days. Don't worry. 30 days. No side effects of this of this drink after 30 days. Yeah. It never mentions it, what the side effects will be for the next 30 days. He sees all the hallucinations of all the people around him. It's just, yeah. it's funny. That's not a side uh, effect. That's the primary effect. Yeah. <laughs> you think. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I thought those were. You could absolutely stat that up. Uh, or drugs. Yeah. Similar. Again, it's it's like the background is coming in sharper relief, you know, in terms of like what mm-hmm. we were drawing from the story. But those are the things that shown for me. See, told you we could pull stuff out of this. Yeah. <laughs> I think I mentioned also like moving on to props and audio suggestions. Yeah, I had this idea that you might be able to talk in foghorn, leghorn speak for an entire <laughs> night. I see, son. I see. <laughs> it might get you... Uh, everlasting fascination of your players or it might get you no players in the future. It's a spell burn, son! It's a spell burn! <laughs> oh, no, no. You you award your players extra points for it if they can stay in character the entire game. Mm, mm, so you've got yeah. Foghorn Leghorn on one side, Barney Fife on the other. <laughs> <laughs> But more seriously, that idea of having a language structure built into your relations with your NPCs and suddenly mm. the, the characters or the players don't know what that is and how to navigate it and they have to puzzle that out or they get into trouble with it. You know, the thou, the use, the you, that's... that's And that's totally fair in a situation like this where their characters, just like the players, are unaware. They don't right. know it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a one-off, but it's also makes that part of the storytelling... A, a little bit of a puzzle, you know, and it also, it's a little bit of that tension too, because, you know, you feel that tension when Finch is confronted with his sort of vying outside the caste system. He's threatened with violence. It turns out the violence is sort of this soft, fluffy politician kind of violence, but, you know, they're, <laughs> it, you know, the, the players in the campaign that are confronted with that, you know, the violence may be very real or it may be, you know, that they, they have to navigate that a little bit more cautiously. And and it's it gets into some of the things that you saw with Kugel in Jack Vance, where he's going into the past and he, he has to do rites, you know, of, you know, oh, I have to touch my left buttock before I have to say the prayer to, you know, this particular god because this village does it this way. It's it's that sort of like 
Stranger in a Strange Land mm-hmm. and being able to navigate that. That's kind of a fun aspect, I think, that's that you could get with the language as well. Another prop I thought would be kind of cool for a, a game, and I don't know how to use this, though, is in the third dream, everybody rings the door. Instead of ringing a door- doorbell, they write their name on a shadow box stylus that the name appears above the door. Yeah, that was kind of neat. That was cool. And I thought that would be kind of fun. I don't know if that actually, that probably existed somewhere because I think it, was, it felt more like a callback to history, you know, in terms of like calling cards and things like that. But the idea mm. that you have a prop that you can have the players ride on and it becomes projected, you know, and, and that might be a way to cast a spell or that might be a way to, you know, solve a, a particular riddle, right? Is that you have to you have to do it in this manner. And just having that physical prop would be something kind of fun to have at the table. Well, yeah, and maybe the cleric has to write their character name in that little box so that their deity knows who's oh. trying to invoke them. Yeah, that's a good idea. Cool. Hmm. What about you, Bob? So many, so many ideas. <laughs> so many little nuggets. Brace yourself. For props, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, Carnelian's actually a really inexpensive semi-precious stone. Like, oh, really, really cheap. Mm-hmm. So when you figure that the Carnelian cube is about the size of a golf ball. So it's 1.68 inches, because I did the math. <laughs> and if you know someone who's familiar with cutting stones like that, uh, a 2.9-inch carnelian sphere, which is what you'd need to make a 1.68-inch cube, Dear goes God. for about 15 to 20 bucks on eBay. <laughs> so, now, granted, the cutting will probably cost you several hundred bucks, but you could actually buy a carnelian sphere, have someone cut it down, because there's carnelian cubes, but they're beads and they're real small. Uh, but you could get these these Reiki healing spheres and uh, cut one down into a cube and do some etching on it for a couple hundred bucks, and you've got something really, really neat, I think, uh, prop-wise. <laughs> so with only that as my prop thought, <laughs> I decided to do a very deep dive into music. Mm-hmm. So I actually, uh, I, I started kind of trying to pull up a few things, like this is going nowhere, and it dawned on me, you know, I have a friend in Turkey. why why don't i reach out to him so i reached out to my friend chatai karahan and we had a discussion starting with like turkish folk music because for me that sort of sets the early scene you know the pre the pre-dreams and i'm gonna butcher a lot of names and i'm sorry to the nation of turkey now (laughs) there's artists like neset artas edip akbaram Asik Vesel, he's like the Ravi Shankar of Turkey. He's like the master Bagmama player. And the Bagmama is that is a three-stringed instrument. If you hear it, you recognize it. When you hear Turkish music, it's it's very distinctive. Then there is when he starts going through the dreams, I started thinking you know, psychedelic music, right? And Turkish psychedelic music, or what they call Anadolu rock, there's artists like Erkin Kure, Sem Karaka, whose music, uh, Sem Karaka's music has actually been used in ads for things like NBA 2K16 from from oh, EA. So, I mean, it, it it's all in the background with hip-hop over it. But he is, he's really cool. And then there's Baris Manko. And Baris Manko is considered to be one of the top artists to emerge in the Turkish music scene ever. He is certainly the most dreamlike with songs like Trip Fairground, Bin Boganen Kizzy, which is a psychedelic funk song. If you say so. And then there's another group called... Uh, <laughs> 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 right, give it a- 
Dolu Kedi Terstut, and they're a Turkish psychedelic hip hop group. What now? Turkish psychedelic <laughs> hip hop. And it's, re- yeah, I know, right? But it's really, really fascinating. I love, like, uh, the Who band, the Mongolian mm-hmm. metal and stuff. I love listening to music that's got those regional influences. And then you, they don't have like a heavy metal scene. They've got what they call the rock metal scene. Okay. And Same there's day. a group called Deja Vu. I can pronounce that one. <laughs> and they've got a song called System Beni Yeni Deli. I'll post it. Uh, it's just, <laughs> but but it is it's essentially Turkish metal with a baglama. So okay. so you've got that going on. Um, there's a gothic metal group called Eighty Caliber. There's so I, I'm going to post so many great links to Turkish metal because it's really mm-hmm. great. And if you want to take the ultimate Turkish music deep dive, like like I have, I'm posting <laughs> a link to to Chatay Karahan's ultimate Spotify list. It's over 32 hours of music, 90% of it's Turkish. Oh, cool. And, and it, it's really cool. That sounds awesome. If you don't want to go that route, <laughs> hmm. for me, you know, dreamlike music, you can always fall back to Journey of the Sorcerer by the Eagles, which is best known as the theme from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It opens with that that slow strumming banjo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here was the kicker. So there is a Denver-based alternative hardcore band, Carnelian Cube. <laughs> uh, I spoke with them wow. today, actually. Uh, the, the name of the band was their bass player's idea. And Just they, a coincidence, they're, they're, though, right? Oh, no, not a coincidence. <laughs> uh, their album, The Foul, is on Bandcamp. It's a pay-what-you-want sort of thing. And I got to say, my favorite track there is Misfit. So deep dive into Turkish music for me. Rise up with some mainstream eagles, and then over to alternative hardcore Carnelian Cube. So, it, is Carnelian Cube going to be our version of Glitter Wizard now? I think the theme music should change. <laughs> what this episode only, though? This episode only. Well, yeah, I could talk to them, but then we'd have to do an outro from like Saint Karloff because of, of all the connections from last episode and their song Spellburn. No, Spellburn needs to change their music from Glitter Wizard to, to St. Karloff. You can use the song Spellburn and over <laughs> God, here... Especially since it was inspired by DCC. That is yes. so awesome. Yeah, I, I love finding bands that are, are gamers and fantasy geeks. It's it's just totally cool. Nice. Uh, okay. What about you, Jen? <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bookend this and say that in the spirit of transparency. I was actually listening to the Beatles while reading part of this. So, Octopus's Garden fits perfectly for the first dream sequence. Okay. (laughs) Wow, out there, man. For the second one, which is kind of a, not backwoods Tennessee, but definitely like 60s Memphis kind of feel, Alice Coltrane. Uh, She's kind of bluesy jazz, Tyria and Ramakrishna. It was the song I was turned on to. Mm-hmm. And for the introduction and actually Dream 3, I'm going contrary to Turkish music. and are in Cappadocia! <laughs> so nearby, uh, I'm going with some Armenian flute, the duduk. Mm-hmm. And there's a set of sorrowful lamentations, Memories of Caucasus by Yegish Manukian. Now, to finish the book ending here, uh, back over to props. Put a bowl of seemingly random objects on the table. Just note which player takes what. 
for those of you wanting something a little cheaper than the filed down cube of carnelian, get one of those light up freezer cubes and put it on the red setting. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I was joking. I just tested one today. Um, (laughs) And, you know, maybe the person that takes that the next time the game setting changes a little bit. It focuses on what that character's idea of a perfect world would be, at least initially. One of the other interesting bits in the book was Amethyst. They called it the Drinker's Stone because phantoms cannot approach them. Oh, that's right. I remember that reference in the book. Mm-hmm. And so if you dovetail that into some of your other things that you're statting up, maybe the reason that one drinker could see the phantom is because he didn't have the stone on him. Maybe everybody else carries around a little keychain with him or something. I liked the idea of a miniature ore, and then have the character make a reflex save every time that player is seen looking at another person's character sheet. Forget the like, R. I think that's a good rule without the R. If a player looks at someone else's character, <laughs> reflex well, no. save. Save or not. Because so many times someone's trying to help somebody else or say, oh, hey, you want to add this number because that's your reflex save. And they're undoubtedly putting their finger on your character sheet or pointing to it. And the whole thing with the people in the boat that Finch had to direct, which was another <laughs> meaningless... It Mm -hmm. was another meaningless part of the book with the rowing crew. Head down, mind your own work, or you end up off sync with everything. You end up tipping the boat. Put a little leaf in there, and the person who grabs that has to adhere to McPherson's steakhouse rules. (laughs) (laughs) I love love that part of the story. Again, a little side story that had little to do with the rest of the novel. Right. It it was the little bits that made the worlds interesting because Finch certainly didn't. And the quote-unquote steakhouse was nothing but leaves and beans and and nuts for dessert. And then finally I would do a small vial or even a little mini bottle of apricot schnapps because that was what allows them to see the phantasms and the undead spirits. He said it tasted like apricot. Nice. I like that list. Get your players liquored up until they see spirits. Okay, I see it. <laughs> well, I, I originally wrote down allows the PC to see the undead spirits. Um, I suppose that's redundant. Um, okay, so that's me. <laughs> this is getting silly. Well, why don't we then talk about uh, inspirations and reskins? I found this one actually tough to connect to some existing modules, I wasn't finding a lot that made me think of DCC. The where my mind went was kind of oddly to Xcrawl, where it's sort of in the manner that Finch is always being dropped into these sort of themes, these theme dungeons. And and, and the idea that, you know, Xcrawl takes this to like the sort of the metagaming level of, you know, the players are aware that they're in this dungeon, but they have to, you know, solve the puzzle or get the prize. In this case, this is the Carnelian Cube, you know. And so I, I kind of thought that Xcrawl was like one of the best fits for, you know, how the book is handling dreams and how it's handling the player characters. I also thought that you might be able to do something by stringing together a number of the Chaos Rising um, or the old free RPG Day uh, adventures, like Elzamon in the Blood Drinking Box. You substitute the cube for the box as the sort of the prize that you have to get to. Um, you connect that with like the jeweler who dealt in Stardust, you know, where the, the cube is hidden in the thieves' house. And you have these sort of like episodic 
string together adventures that the end goal is always the artifact that you're chasing, um, but it becomes a you know, a linked together story, each in a, in a different environment that the characters are transported to each time they grab the cube or each time they, you know, they reach the end end result. And I think Chaos Rising is one of those that has a number of those that you could, you could string together like that. Um, so I like that idea. What about you, Bob? First of all, I think you could probably use almost all of Welcome to Pandemonium from the Gong Farmer's Almanac 2017. <laughs> That's After true. After one of the <laughs> if not Pandemonium. <laughs> that whole sort of concept, I think, would allow you to uh, take a story like this that is so disjointed and make some sort of meta sense out of it at a, at a table. Of course, there's themes like Purple Planet and Not in Kansas Anymore, where you've got people going into worlds they're not necessarily familiar with. And you, you could take Not in Kansas Anymore, for example. And it opens up with the with the movie shoot that's not a movie shoot. Well, maybe it is a movie shoot, but you want realism. One of the characters is a film director, and he wants realism. And so everything is real, and so people are being converted into monsters. And with just a little bit of touch, it's a lot easier, I think, with the, the more modern kind of anachronistic stories and, and modules. But with a couple touches like that, you could certainly fit pieces like that in, or or null singularity, or even... Black Sun Death Girl. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, still not released. I think there's four of them. Uh, Michael Curtis's Phantasmagorias, which are being mm-hmm. playtested again at, I think, GaryCon, with mm-hmm. the whole, you know, dream worlds and shifting back and forth and things changing. Those, those are the sorts of... DCC inspirations that kind of called me. Purple Planet, you could probably do a little bit of reskin on. Um, Nowhere City Nights would be perfect because come on. Well, the noir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, think, think about it. In what DCC setting are you most likely to hear people say, so use guys? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Definitely uh, Nowhere City Nights. Uh, what about you, Jen? Uh, well, you took one of them off my list. The four Phantasmagorias came to mind almost immediately. Um, and then. As we kept going through, and he would keep finding the recurring character, but, you know, looking like or acting like somebody else, Bride of the Black Mance. Because you have that almost imported personality, and for similar but different reasons, the floating oasis of the Ascended God, which is actually included in the second printing of Bride of the Black Mance by Stephen Newton on this one, totally reminded me of the entire third dream. Mm. Because they go up some rafters and into what's basically a film shoot area to recreate all of these scenes. And that's exactly what you end up doing. Uh, you, You go visit the ascended god who has come down to almost your level so that you can go in. Hmm. There's also, I think, one of my favorites to tie into this, or actually to dovetail into or out of this, would be The Misguided Menace of Georgetown. Uh, This was the one written by Brendan LaSalle. It was included in the 2018 Goodman Games Gen Con Program Guide. This is one that was created when... Brendan did a talk at a college convention, and he was given a group of, I think, 21 players 
to sit down and have them cooperatively build this adventure. So part of them got the monster, part of them got the setting, part of them got some of the other aspects of it, and it comes together in such a silly adventure of misplaced Americana. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be absolutely perfect with that second sequence. You could actually use that as your setting if you were to replay this book or run this book as a series of adventures. That's a so. that's a really good call out because that I don't think it's much attention since it got into the Gen Con program guide and not a separate lease release. But the story behind that is fascinating and I just love, you know, what he was able to produce with that that classroom. Yes. Well yes, worth reading. And if you have the time, if you're just out for a jog or something and you want to take a listen, there's actually a link that we could include to his hour-long seminar that he gave to that same group on gaming. Nice. So I thought that was really illustrating, for lack of a better word. <laughs> well, that's a good tie-in to our DCC feature for the show. It was a little bit unintentional. No, but it works great. <laughs> Featuring Neon Knights. DCC number 94, written by Brendan, Beast Mode LaSalle. 10,000 flawless killers surround the city, utterly silent in battle and in death. They seem unconquerable. They mean to choke the life out of the age-old city and leave it an empty ruin. The city calls upon its heroes to defeat this unnatural menace. The heroes gather to ponder the question, how do you defeat an impregnable foe? And then a wizard from a far-off world whisks the heroes away to fight battle of a very different sort, leaving them with a strange neon pink glow around their eyes. God, I loved this adventure. <laughs> this one was, yeah, very good. Yeah, this is the first time I'd read it. I had a chance to, you know, actually dive into it for this episode. And I thought the thematic connections were, you know, very similar to how the book tells of Finch's sort of like transportation to these different dream worlds. Well, just like that, your players are whisked away to, in this case, I was surprised to find this is actually a purple planet setting, you know, which is great for those. That, yeah, it can be or it can be done just completely independent of that. But for those that are looking for more purple planet material, Neon Knights actually has a lot of tie-ins, you know, to that campaign, especially if you're running like a long-term campaign in the in the Purple Planet world. Well, and you know, speaking of long-term campaigns, this adventure can really be run as a series of interludes within a campaign. I love that. You about don't it, have yeah. to sit down and play it all at once. And so that was just one of the first things that sprang to my mind, it, much like the Phantasmagoria is, here's an adventure where you know, we can sit down and do People of the Pit and then the first part of Neon Knights, and then we could do two other adventures and the next part of Neon Knights. And it all kind of works very tidily in that fashion, I think. Right. It can be run as a straight mod or non-linear, as he puts it, and you can either do it as part of a campaign or as a one-shot, a standalone. Yeah. Which is how we played it at uh, Game Hall. It was the only time I was able to use the rule in the DCC book that says, under rare circumstances, clerics and spellburn. <laughs> <laughs> it was ritual magic. It wasn't in combat, but I got to spellburn a cleric. It was awesome. And I, I have to be honest, there was a point within the Carnelian Cube 
that Finch was half expecting this room to dissolve into a windy plain beneath his feet. And I was immediately taken here to the sea of dust. Mm -hmm. And then I found out what our featured module was going to be. And I was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's perfect. And the sea of dust is also your purple planet tie-in. So work with it, people. Yeah. And, and like the hallucinations and being able to see those ghosts, it has a kind of undercurrent of those that have been affected by this particular artifact, you know, that's part of the Neon Knight setting. They recognize each other independently or outside of that context when oh, yeah. when they encounter each other. And that, that also, you could do so much with that if this is part of your campaign world. You don't have to take just the neon night npcs you could make that a link or or adventure tie-in for anywhere you wanted to take your pcs you know it becomes the how did they become connected to this thing that i'm connected to it's the azure bond of the setting you know in this case it's you know it's it, you recognize the fellow conspirator in that case it can have kind of those echoing effects you could run neon knights and if three years later in your campaign, they could be in a bar and there's just this wizened, drained, tired old man sitting at a table by himself with a pink glow to his eyes. Mm-hmm. And they know. Mm-hmm. They know where he's been. They know what he's been through. The question is, was it before or after them? Is this still going on? And so it's a night. It gives you a great piece of flavor that you could oh, put yeah. anywhere that is going to be immediately impactful after the after people have played this because they have played coming to understand what this means. You know, they have lived through those memories and so they are more likely your players are more likely to empathize with the NPCs that have been through the same. Mm-hmm. Now I think it was GaryCon seven, the second time that we went, that I got to play this on a bright and early Sunday morning. Oh, that's right. We didn't play this together. <laughs> no, no, we did not. I actually got to play test this one with Connor Sketch. And the primary artifact that is pretty much the, the central focal point of the story, or of this adventure, rather, promise me that when you're trying to activate it, that you roll a one, please. <laughs> It has some of the most entertaining results. But one important part of that artifact is that even if it's not obvious at first, that artifact is the center of this. And the PCs are, to obfuscate a little bit, drawn to where they're needed because of it. But those PCs may actually get a will save. Which makes it better than the story, because if you don't like where you're at, you can make that will save. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you decide you don't want to stay, you can do the equivalent of take another nap. Also, the cube obviously has more than one backstory, because the current artifact, shall we say, the current holder of that artifact is operating on false intel, which is kind of a shame. I, th- I also thought that this is a good example of a story where Brendan's voice translates really well to this adventure. From playing with him at it conventions does. and envision him running this and me participating in that through the adventure. And I, 
and it gets into some of that dialect. It gets into some of that language. It's, it, he obviously has some suggestions in the adventure text itself, but really reinforces for those that get the opportunity to actually play in one of Brendan's games because it is a fun and fascinating, just a ball to play with him. And so this is a good way of doing that. If you can't get to one of those conventions, I think this is better. The best example of that I've seen in terms of like his written word tying into how the experience of the table is for those games. And how about that album cover of oh. of a module, yeah. man? That- <laughs> well, that's sort of fitting, considering you know the the title is Neon Knights. Yes, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> now, granted, it's Ronnie James Dio era, but you know, <laughs> hey, 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 hey d- we will throw no shade at Dio. <laughs> <laughs> and is it just me or all of those rotating NPCs from? all of the dreams if you're reskinning this they could definitely be the i believe brendan calls them canonicals part of those 10,000 flawless i mean talk about exquisitely just saying here's generic npc number 1 through 10,000 <laughs> Well, with that, definitely go check that adventure out. I think we're at Road Crew and Convention Shoutouts. To start off, we have Christian Bird hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at the Beer Temple in Chicago. Tim Lawchrist is running DCC at Blank Comics in Florence, Alabama every other Sunday. Next game should be held on February 24th, but check with the store for details. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Meetup's DCC RPG NYC group is hosting weekly games on Saturday afternoons at the Brooklyn Strategist. They're rotating between Judges Hoy, Andrew Sternick, Vasily Kaliman, and David Willems. And please note that the Brooklyn Strategist does have a $10 cover charge. Chris Tanglebones Lorisella runs DCC MCC games roughly every other week at Bell Book and Comics in Dayton, Ohio. More details can be found on Meetup. Mike Carlson is running Open Table DCC Games on the second and fourth Mondays of the month at Everybody Reads Books and Stuff in Lansing, Michigan. (laughs) Games start at 6.30. That one always makes me giggle. (laughs) Mario Garcia runs a weekly DCC game on Thursday evenings at Funnigan Games in Eugene, Oregon. Michael Harrington will be running Nebin Pendlebrook's Perilous Pantry at 11 a.m. on February 24th at... Genghis Khan, (laughs) held in Aurora, Colorado. Many of us, including your three keepers, are gearing up for Gary Khan coming in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, this March 7th through 10th. Be sure to join us for DCC, MCC, Dark Trails, DCC Lankmar, Starcrawl, Playtest of DCC Dying Earth, and probably a ton of other flavors we've forgotten or don't know about yet. Oh, yeah, there'll good be Umerica, there'll be X-Crawl, oh, so many things. So many games. The the typers can only type so fast, I apologize. But hey, guess what? The Sanctum Socorum now has an MCC license. In honor of that, we are putting together a special all-MCC release. So send us your MCC-compatible submissions by March 31st, and our favorite will receive their choice of a first edition copy of the MCC rules or a bundle from the... Prize Closet of Mystery. 
Four runners up will also receive goodies to stoke their MCC themed imaginations. As always, send your submissions to the hub at sanctum.media and check the website for all contest rules. Did you know that the Sanctum Sacrum podcast is now available on Spotify? <gasps> we are? We are. You can actually find us on about a dozen podcast outlets. Spotify, Evooks, Podchaser, iTunes, Podbean, Pod Paradise, Listen Notes, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Podtail, Stitcher, Google Play, and others. Can't find us on your favorite Ooh. podcast outlet? Drop us a line. Let us know. We will either get onto that outlet or burn them to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your appendix and reading, and we would love to hear how you have used ideas that we've been discussing. Do you have a favorite spell from the companion or a favorite monster from appendix and nightmares? Let us know. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, please comment on the podcast or help us by posting a review on iTunes or drive through RPG for you zine fans. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. Be sure to pay your respects on Google Plus until the very bitter end. Mention us on Facebook, mm. wake us up on MeWe, and <laughs> still ignore us on Ello. Yeah. <laughs> we Ello, hope the Julian Burnick of social media. <laughs> 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 wow. Oh. Couldn't even go Hobbs with that. Well, you know, I could, but you know, Hobbs gets enough grief from Julian, and I figure if I gotta pick a side in that knife fight, eh, maybe I'll back Hobbs. <laughs> uh, you know, show comes mm -hmm. out more regularly than both of ours combined. If you, if you say Julian's name three times, he might appear on the podcast, though. So. Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> we hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Good night, everybody. Have a wonderful evening. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. Join us again next time for Movie Night as the Keepers of Mystery explore the film adaptation of Paul Anderson's High Crusade. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2019. Hey everyone, I am Jason Hobbs, host of Hobbs and Friends. I'm sending you a personal invitation to stop by HobbsandFriends.com and listen to my friends and I converse about tabletop role-playing games in an easy, comfortable conversation. I interview all sorts of people in the industry, such as designers, artists, writers, and even players. No one is too famous or not famous enough. We're all gamers and we all have something to say about something. Most of the time, it relates to the niche I'm most involved with in the tabletop role-playing game industry, the OSR. But it doesn't have to be. Have a laugh and a listen, and hopefully you'll join up with Mr. Hobbs's Gamerhood and be one of my gamers. Uh, or friends. I'm bored. Me too. 
this 24th level dark elf barbarian assassin is lame. Hey, want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Yeah! Then just open up a vein and pray to the Dark Master! Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn! Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey guys, can I play? Sure! Sure! Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool! I summoned a demon horde! <laughs>